High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, I have to say, um, I've been deeply worried for some time about the way the education system deals uh, with children who have special needs, dyslexia and so on being being examples. And we did a piece on the programme some weeks ago which got an extraordinary reaction because we were talking about homework and then it led on to that, about how it's just literally a lottery whether your child gets help or not. At that time, talking to me was Tracy McNulty, who's a learning support uh, resource teacher. Tracy, welcome to the programme. Thank you. Now, we've talked about this before. You might explain, first of all, the lottery component of special needs, that uh, when you look at a list, some kids are going to get help and some are not. Why is that? Well, it's just because there aren't um, enough assessments in schools. So each year, every school is uh, um, given a couple of assessments, um, mainly between two and four usually, depending on the size of the school. And the school have to compile a list and then choose children that they feel um, will benefit from it from it most. Um, but the reality is that there are far more children in every school that need and require an assessment in order to access the education system. But what you also told me, I think if I correctly remember, is that what many parents do who can afford it, and this is a key point, if they can afford 800 quid, they can get their child privately assessed and therefore, in a sense, jump the queue. Is that right? Yes, they can, yes. And um, in the system uh, that is in presently, there is a new system coming in in September, but in in the system now, um, a diagnosis of certain conditions will allow you to access resource um, support. So, um, for example, an, um, a, spe- a speech and language impairment may give you uh, around 2.7 um, hours a week of, of specialised teaching. Um, and a, a diagnosis um, for a child on the autistic spectrum will... Um, enable you to access 4.25 hours. Okay. Now, so parents want to obviously access um, these resources. Yeah. Now, why I asked you particularly, because of course more news has now come in, that there's the more and more children are seeking access to special needs support, and the government is now suddenly finding that it won't have the cash, and and that um, this is going to it's now running at something like as much as as a fifth of total government expenditure on education is going towards special needs, and presumably they're going to run out of money. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's um, a few reasons, and uh, I think one of the main reasons is that. Um, before, before 10, 20 years ago, we didn't provide for um, children with special educational needs to be educated in a mainstream school. Whereas in 2004, the Epson Act um, was, drawn up, was drawn up, and then it said in that that children should be educated in an inclusive environment with children that do not have um, such needs. So there was um, a lot of children. There were a lot of children that um, enrolled in mainstream schools that that couldn't have before, and uh, obviously 
this 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 was wonderful for many of them and but we need or supports were certain supports were needed to ensure that they could access the education system so and that's where learning support teachers came in, resource teachers came in, and uh, special needs assistants um, came in. Yeah. And that was the dramatic increase. Yes, but Tracy, and my guest is a learning support and resource teacher, Tracy McNulty. Tracy, of course, the other reason is that, like, when I was going to school, and, and it, it doesn't, you don't even have to go back that far, um, nobody diagnosed dyslexia or anything of children in school. They were just put in a corner with a dunce's cap on, in effect sad to relate and they were just seen as stupid uh, whereas now obviously with better diagnoses we are seeing greater cost and the government hasn't factored that in exactly i mean special education needs were always there as you said and it's it's just being recognized now and people and parents are aware that with appropriate interventions you know this can help increase life chances and of course they want to understandably access that so it is the fact that people are more educated now as well and know what is what could be available to them. That's that's where the increase um, has come in. And and as we spoke about before, twenty percent of children do not learn in the neurotypical way. So of course a huge amount of the budget is going to is going to go towards um, allowing those children to access and the education. Okay. But Tracy, this was my theory when I heard the story this morning that the numbers had increased. If you're a reasonably well-off, or maybe not even reasonably well-off parent, uh, and you have a child in school who who is having difficulty, we don't know what difficulty is. It may not be like autism, dyslexia, or, or readily identifiable uh, uh, th- education difficulties. If you go down to a friendly psychiatrist and pay him 800 quid, uh, I don't know anything about the psychiatric business, but you might as well get a report that says your child needs extra help. So now suddenly your child is getting 4.25 hours or 2.2 hours or whatever you talk about, uh, extra help that they might not otherwise gain. So naturally, there must be a huge increase in people paying for private assessment. Of course, yes. And this completely depends on um, the school and um, um, how, how much money the parents have to spend, to spend on that. So it is um, very unfair because there are some parents that can afford to do it. And as you said, there are some parents that can't afford to do it, but will still do it. And then there are other parents that cannot afford, just, just cannot afford, afford to do it. Or also there are parents that that may need a professional to talk them through it. And they may not be up for an assessment, but, but if it was free, the, the psychologist could talk them through it and, you know, make them realise that, help them to realise that and um, this may benefit their ch- their children or their child. Um, but So there are some parents that won't pay for it because they, they, they are fearful of it. Yeah, but Tracy... So many, so many parents and um, so many children miss out but also the children that are allocated the resources from private psychologists often are middle-class children who, um, whose parents are in the know.
Correct. Now, there is an issue here, though, Tracy. If, forget about that middle-class parents would have an advantage over poorer parents because they can get an independent assessment, and some get assessments where children don't have serious uh, disabilities, but they get extra teaching. You did say that one in five children are not best taught by the conventional education system. Is that so? Yes, yes. Okay. That's that yeah. based on international research. Yeah, right. Okay. So that means your average class of 25, 30, there are five or six children in the class who, who do not benefit from the type of teaching that we are currently offering in our education system. So therefore, I would absolutely, if I were a parent, take my child to an independent uh, uh, psychologist, get an assessment of something, whatever it is, in order to get 4.2 hours of extra support from somebody like you. So, I of mean, course, the yes. system is failing 20% of our children because we have a curriculum that is not designed for 20% of our children. That's a staggering number. It's a huge amount. And there is a new system coming in in September, which means that schools, you, schools now decide... Um, schools now can decide where uh, who's getting the um, hours or the help. Yeah. So these diagnoses won't make much of a difference. It, it, the school decides based on um, their observations who needs the help and, and who right. doesn't need the help. And that, that, that is um, a positive of the new system. However, um, I think that it doesn't fix the real problem, which is that the public system is just I mean, it's dysfunctional. Right. It simply doesn't work, and it's constantly playing catch up. Right. I think if that um, was looked at, well, then and everybody went through the public system, well, well then it would be a much fairer um, system. All right, Tracy. Thank you so much. Learning support and resource teacher Tracy McNulty. High noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with seventeen hotels across Ireland and the UK. The Irish record store, Golden Discs, has posted a profit in 2016. And it's all due, apparently, to soaring vinyl sales. I'm joined now by the man who single-handedly created this profit rush in Golden Discs, Tom Dunn, who you can hear every night during the summer at 9 o'clock, Monday to Thursday here on News Talk. But this week, you'll find him, of course, uh, in a couple of hours' time uh, on the Moncrief Show, which he's presented. Tom, welcome to the programme. Lovely to see you, George. Now, when I first met you at the beginnings of the 21st century, you were the only person who talked about vinyl. And you, Truthfully now, I, yeah. I don't exaggerate. You were the first person to recognise vinyl of, coming yeah, back. one of the first. And we did a thing on the daytime show when we had it where we only played vinyl for a while and we got people to send in their vinyl records and tell stories about them. And we, we were inundated with the number of people who had old vinyl records they wanted to listen to. So you could see it kind of gathering speed as it went along. It, it's uh, yeah, a very but desirable it's, thing. Yeah, but I mean, it's all very well to say you could see it, but a lot of people didn't see it. I mean, to be fair, Tom, you saw it because I, I remember listening to you and talking to you and then you sent me around to a shop around the corner that only sells vinyl and it right. bought a 
Glenn Miller. That's right. I remember that. And the happiness in you when you received this fabulous. Glenn Miller record. Because I have a player like, you know, yeah. like a record player. Now, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> there are people who don't know what we're talking about. Should we tell them what mine is? I we should. I'd hope they do. Now, they're the old black records that everyone listened to when they were growing up. They were the number one thing to listen to until probably around the mid-80s, early 90s is when the start CD started to take over. But they're the old black records, long players, what the LP stands for. Plays at 33 revs per minute, generally lasts around the 40 minute mark. All the all the classic albums were issued first on vinyl, Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds and all the greats. Well, this must be, surely, when you think of the technological era we live in, this must be one of the few examples of where old technology yep. is better than new technology. Why is that? I mean, why do you think people are buying in such numbers that it can put a record store like Golden Discs into I the black? I think there's two aspects to it. One is the sound quality, and the sound quality genuinely is better than CD. Is it's it? a nicer, warmer sound than okay. CD. It's an analogue sound. It's it's music, the way it was made, the way it was recorded. It just, you just need to listen to it, and your ear literally goes, it sounds nicer. Not louder or more accurate or any of those things. Just, it's a nicer sound it's better okay. to listen to and the second thing is it's a very desirable purchase it's like a book you know the way people hang on to books after they've, mm. they've read them they like to have them around they like to look them like to pick them up now and again records are like that I brought in one just to show you today yeah. Otis Redding and Carla Thomas an album issued in 1967 on the Stax record label and when you pick it up you buy into a whole world of history they recorded it in six days Otis Redding was their biggest star at the time Carla Thomas was the daughter of uh, Rufus Thomas, who was also one of their stars, she was doing an MA. She took six days off doing her MA to record this. Otis Redding died a few days later in a plane crash. It's the last recording. Ah, no. Yes. Wow. And you pick up all these things and you read the sleeve notes and it draws you in. They do a version of Knock on Wood, which is a huge song. And the, you find out they did this because... Um, there were many people having hits with duets at the time and, and Stax Records thought they wanted to have a, a, a you know a duets album as well and that's why they recorded it. But the house band of the uh, Booker T and the MGs who became a hugely famous band as well. So you buy into all these things and you go into this lovely shop. Golden Discs have launched this gorgeous shop in Cork up a flight of stairs in their main shop on Patrick Street and it's all leather sofas and coffee and racks of albums. Yes, sir. Yeah, and you can grab an album Sit down on a leather, leather sofa, read the sleeve notes on something like this and take your time about what you think you're going to buy and what you're going to bring home. And then you have this thing in a paper bag going home, looking forward to the moment when you put it on. It's brilliant. It's a great you've experience. You've used uh, a lit, uh, two words, um, but you've used them a couple of times. And, and again, because they, not everybody would know them, I think we should linger a while. Sleeve notes. Yes. Like if you buy... Something else now, and and more importantly, a lot of people might be listening, streaming Spotify or whatever. You lose the sleeve notes. You do. I had an idea for you, but I couldn't find the record. I was going to bring in a memory stick, and I was going to say, do you know what's on this, George? The entire back catalogue of Buddy Holly. And then I was going to bring in a box set of vinyl <laughs> and say, and it's on this as well. And yeah. I know that if I handed it over to you, you'd open it and you'd start to read the stories of who was in the studio, where he did the album, what was going on, photographs of him looking fantastic. It just draws you in. The, the sleeve notes are the accompanying notes yeah. just setting the album in context. And that's a huge thing. They set it in context. It's 1957 when you read this.
All right, but the only problem is now for a lot of people listening, and I know I'm treating a lot of people listening like as Egypts, but I'm not really. It, because it, a lot of people who had record players probably threw them out. They may have done. Most people, I think, love them and put them into the attic. The number of people is who that say, what they to, yeah, they still, people still say to me, I have an old record deck in the attic. And it's strange, but if they get them down, they could find they have very good record decks. Because a lot of those decks in the 60s and the 70s were great. They were made like tanks. Well, if it were me, I would have thrown them out. I mean, there's no doubt. I, I'm a thrower-outer rather yeah. than a keeper, right? But Ingrid kept the deck in the original place we had it. Beautiful. With the original uh, sound gadgets, what do you call them? The amplifiers. The amplifiers. And, and and speakers. <laughs> speakers, that'll do fine. <laughs> Your, right. So she's got all those. And Ingrid's choice of music is a bit different from mine. Although she does like Mike and the Mechanics. Do you ever they're hear good. Them? Yeah, I know Mike and the Mechanics. Yeah, she Mike likes them. Yeah, good. But she also likes good music, you know. Classical music. Yeah. Sounds very good on vinyl. I can imagine. And on... Tomorrow now, Saturday, this is very politically incorrect, Tom, but you know me, as she hoovers around the house while George is playing golf, uh, she will no doubt be listening to Strauss or, oh, Marler. Now yeah. she'll have Marler on. Now you get that on a good deck with lovely speakers and you hear, it's like being in the room with the orchestra. It really is fantastic. And that music, that's pure analogue music. It's made for vinyl records. It's a magic. She is enjoying the hoovering, George. Oh, yeah. She whizzes around with the I'm Hoover, I have to tell you, while yeah. I'm hitting majestic tree irons towards yes. faraway Greece. And I heard your show during the week, looking forward to coming, coming home and putting the duvet cover on. <laughs> <laughs> Can you put on duvet cover? Why would I want to, George? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, it's very complicated. It looks too complicated for me. I stay away from it, George. No, I'm staying with the, the dishwasher at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's my good. primary task, although she has now forced me into changing the duvet. But maybe I could change the duvet cover if I had Buddy the Holly right on vinyl next it. to me. I think that would actually make you very, very happy. I think if you got a present for a birthday or Christmas and you opened it and there was a really beautiful edition of a Buddy Holly album on vinyl, I think you'd weep when well, you saw it, it. This is interesting now because in a couple of months, my kids, you know the way young people send out these emails, what do you want for Christmas and yes. all this kind of stuff? And I say... Uh, Boxer shorts and socks, right? Yes. And I've been saying that for 20 years. I think I might say vinyl record. You absolutely have to. And when you get one That's of them, such a good idea. It's like time travel when you open it up. You remember where you were the first time you heard this. And yeah. I find that very powerful because I still have my own albums. And some of them have written on them in my handwriting. Christmas 1975, when I would have gotten a present from my mother and father. Well, no, yeah, that, that's really good because you do, for me, that would be books. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Mostly, in my case, of course, first place in English literature. Oh, no, Hello, Tom. I know, I mean, I know, me, I me know. being such a huge intellect yes. and all that. <laughs> no, but you're right, though. I, I mean, uh, I, you have books in which you have yep. a, a date or somebody gave it to you, and, and that's that's fantastic. I, I've, I used to write the date on every single record, so how Did much you? I paid for it as well. And four no. four ninety nine was the general price, £4.99 back in the mid-70s. So they've held their value well. But it brings you back. You remember, you think, who gave me this for Christmas? What was going on in our house? All, all the kids would have been still in the house at that point in the 70s. You just think, it's, it's very yeah. powerful emotionally. See, I can actually, would you believe this? 
this seems extraordinary. I'm 14 years of age, right? And as you know, I love talking about how poor I was, yes. right? But I was. And we didn't have a record player in the house and I couldn't, a gramophone as they were called, and I couldn't afford records. But it was a fellow in my class called Jerry Collins, sadly no longer with us. And Jerry and I are walking down McCurtain Street and there was a record shop. And he went in to buy a record. And and it's exactly like the shop you talk about in yeah. Cork now. You went in and you got this record. Now, this was a 78, so there was only one song on either side. Are you with me? Yes. And he, he, we went in and we went into this booth. And then they played the record and you could listen to it in this booth. Yeah. And he bought it. And that's the thing. That's and I could remember that, and I was fourteen years of age. And that's in your lifetime. Well, you think how much music has moved on since then. But that experience of putting the needle in the groove and waiting okay. for the music. Listen, Tom, you don't have to answer this question. Yes. Okay. But presumably, now the golden discs are making a fortune. Yes. They're sending you a cheque every week for your contribution to their profitability. Well, I always have to be paid in records. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, in a couple of hours, Tom Dunn's Velvet Tones will be filling the airwaves between two and four on Moncrief. Then... Uh, if you want to overdose, Monday to Thursday during the summer at nine, it's Tom Dunn here on News Talk. Tom, thanks a million. Thank you, George. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Now, I'm joined by Stephen Bendick, film lecturer at Trinity College Dublin. You'll find him at Stephen Bendick. Daddy, another of George's favourite movies. What do you think of my choice this week? Fantastic. Oh, um, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about North by Northwest, Alfred Hitchcock's classic thriller. It's also a romantic comedy as well. It's also an action-adventure film. It's an espionage movie. It's all these things rolled into one. And for me... I mean, my favourite Hitchcock movie is Notorious because I think that's the very, very first Hitchcock film I saw. I was 11 years old. My parents went out to dinner. The babysitter came you, in. You had a very great year when you were 11 because every week when you come in here, you claimed no, I was my favourite no, film I was when you nine, were 11. I, I was nine when I saw Bonnie and Clyde. I was 12 <laughs> when I saw Chinatown. I was 11 when I... I actually have a book at home, a logged all the lists of all the, the movies when I saw them. But this is truly one of the, the great, great fun movies. But the thing we've got to understand about Hitchcock... He he was much more than the sum of his parts. People think they're looking at pure entertainment, but he was able to smuggle in some very, very, very interesting themes into his films. I will come to them in a second. But yeah. it really is. It's a great choice. Yeah, I know you think this is your favourite film segment, <laughs> but it's actually mine. You know? yeah. But I'm telling you why it's your favourite film. <laughs> you are, yeah. That's yeah. the point. First of all, for me, what, like... I, I don't think Cary Grant ever made a bad film, right. uh, you know, because I just thought he was fantastic. And, and uh, then the Hitchcock thing about blondes, I don't know whether this is true or not, but Eve Marie Saint uh, won an Oscar. On the for, Waterfront. On the Waterfront, which was a movie I didn't like, okay. interestingly. Mm -hmm. Do you know, I only say that. But for me... This is the only movie that I saw with her in it okay. that I really enjoyed. Right. And then 
James Mason, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago when we were talking mm. about... Uh, the Verdict. The Verdict. Mm. I just thought he was class. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so then, I like the cast again, yeah, the cast big it, for me. It, we, we, and you're often going on about the, the support characters and yeah. how rich the support characters are and that increase, sort of that deepens the texture and tapestry of a film. And in the, in the support cast, we've got Martin Landau, who actually passed away this week. Oh, um, that's he, right. he played James Mason's sidekick you know, the guy who is assisting James Mason smuggle all the stuff out of the... Because in case anyone hasn't seen the film, in, a, in classic Hitchcock sense, there's this object that everyone's chasing after that holds this secret formula. Nobody really knows what's in it. I personally think it contains Donald Trump's income tax returns. <laughs> but that's just yeah, me. You had to get that in. Well, yeah. you know, Go on. So the thing is, they're trying to smuggle this, this, this artifact out of, the, out of America. And Eve Marie Saint plays this mysterious woman who Car- Cary Grant meets on the train. He's, been wa- he's already wanted for mur- having murdered or allegedly murdered a man in the UN. If you think this plot is convoluted, wait till you sit down and watch it. It's very, very easy to follow, but it's great fun in the way it unrolls. Can I just bring us back to the theme of the story? Okay. Hitchcock made over f- uh, 50 films in his career. Okay, and he had recurring motifs throughout. So you have espionage as one. You have cases of mistaken identity and men wrongly accused of crimes that they didn't commit. You also have um, visual motifs like birds turn up in a lot of his films. We've already got mistaken identity. You've got trains. You know, you've got the thirty nine steps. You've got the lady vanishes set on the train. You've got strangers on a train. The only want to shadow of a doubt takes place on a train. North by Northwest is on the train. Yeah. So North by Northwest actually, when he sat down and collaborated with Ernest Lehman, the, the scriptwriter, they were almost making a compendium of great Hitchcock films All and rolling right, more okay, into one. Yeah. And as I said to you, one of the things is identity. Okay, now, Joe, um, Cary Grant plays this guy called uh, Roger O. Thornhill. We'll come back to the O in a minute. And he plays an advertising executive, Madison Avenue. And he's mistaken for a guy called George Kaplan. George Kaplan doesn't exist. So he's been mistaken for somebody who doesn't exist. Hence the O in his name. And the O in his name represents the big nothing at the centre of the film. Eva Marie Saint plays a lady called Eve Kendall, who is not who we think she is. And then when we discover who we think she is, she's actually somebody else. And then you've got (laughs) Philip Van Damme, played by James Mason, who's pretended to be this guy, Lester Townsend. We've got this clip lined up, which is the first encounter that he has with Eve Marie Saint on the train. Jack Phillips, Western sales manager for Kingby Electronics. No, you're not. You're Roger Thornhill of Madison Avenue, and you're wanted for murder on every front page in America. And don't be so modest. Oops. Oh, don't worry. I won't say a word. How come? I told you. It's a nice face. Is that the only reason? It's going to be a long night. True. And I don't particularly like the book I've started. Ah. You know what I mean? Oh, let me think. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Now, it's you just this, class. It is. It's, it, you know, it's, it's class. It's great, great writing, brilliant performances. Now, the interesting thing is that Hitchcock really wasn't interested in actors. He very, very famously referred to them as cattle and sheep just to move around the set and I think you mentioned that Eva Marie Saint Eva Marie Saint won the Academy Award for her performance in On the Waterfront a movie that you said you didn't particularly like she gives a great performance in that movie but the way he reshaped her for North by Northwest shows that he wasn't interested in actors he wanted types and Cary Grant had to play a certain type suave debonair and if you look at other you know Jimmy uh, James Stewart for example played the everyman in his films and then the, the women 
Grace Kelly always had to be very, very elegant. Ingrid Bergman played the perpetual victim in his films. And Eve Marie Saint plays this, the personification, I think, of the ultimate mystery woman in his films. So, you know, that's one of the ways in which you can watch a Hitchcock film is that it's not just great entertainment. It is, you know, a mystery. I'd like to talk to you about Hitchcock a minute because, mm. you know, I've watched them all. And yeah. I've watched them all a ton of times. Mm. Like, um, And... First of all, for people listening, I think because obviously a lot of my movies were made in a certain to, era, yeah, yeah, and they might have dismissed them because they don't appear on their mm. television or on Sky mm. Movies or whatever it is. And what I discovered interestingly, as soon as people watch, suddenly decide, I'm going to watch this thing. What's he talking about? Excuse me, this, but they're, they're hooked. Excuse the pun. They're hooked. Yeah, yeah. they suddenly yeah. say, now I see what he's talking about. These are great movies, yeah. and they outlast time because it's is over half a century old. Yeah, and, yeah. And if you and I watched it tonight, it'd be like if we paid for a ticket in the Savoy <laughs> to watch it. It's that good. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Hitchcock, and I saw a movie about called Hitch, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a very complex man. He was. He was a great film uh, guy. Yeah, himself and his wife, Alva Ravel. Uh, sorry, Alma Ravel. Great collaborators. And I think his wife, um, her, the importance of her role in his life and in his career is often overlooked. Um, she was a script consultant early on in his career and he consulted her on everything. Casting, wardrobe, uh, plot development. So, you know, she was a huge element in his life. But you're right. He had a, it was a very, very complex man and he wasn't nice to no. his actors and especially the, the actresses in his films. A non relatively, I would think, unknown thing about him. You know, I'm very interested in World War II. Mm. And when the British Army went into the concentration That's camps right. yeah. and they saw these awful Images. sights, yeah. and the cameraman just kept the camera running. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't they weren't filmmakers, but now they had to make a film of this. Documentary, and they yeah. flew Hitchcock in from yeah. America. That's right. No, he didn't last that long, yeah. but it, it was indicative of his standing mm-hmm. that they would fly him in to That's make right. this concentration camp yeah, movie. It, it, it's interesting, as you said, because, you know, it, you know, in the United States, he was just considered to be a, an entertainer. And it was actually the French film critics who took him up and recognized there was something. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was a, two particular, two, uh, three or four critics in particular. Uh, Claude Chabrol, there was Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut, who most famously sat him down in the mid-60s for a very, very lengthy interview. And he analyzed his films shot by shot. And he spoke, he talked with Hitchcock through them. I'm glad you mentioned the World War II element because there's two possible sources of inspiration for this film. One can be sourced to an, opera, uh, an operation in World War II called Operation Mince Meat. And this was when the Allies were um, warring in the, in the Mediterranean. They're trying to figure out where would they attack the Nazis next. And they commandeered the remains of a Welsh vagrant called uh, Glinder Michael was his name. And they disguised him as Captain William Martin. And they dressed him up in a, a Navy uniform and they gave him all these documents on his personage. And they set his body adrift off the Spanish coast. The Spaniards, who were supposedly um, neutral in the war, but we know that they were fascists who were on Hitler's side, they found the body. They reported all the documents to the, to the, to the Nazi high command, letting everybody think in the Nazi high command that the Allies were actually going to invade, going to attack Greece when actually they're after Sicily. So the entire idea of making a body and disguising them as somebody else, that's what happens in North Korea. Okay, because Operation Minsmith is also uh, a movie that I wouldn't class it as a favourite, but I really enjoyed. Mm. That whole story is told in The Man Who Never Was, was that's right, with yeah. Clifton Webb. Yeah. Now, I've got to get a few Clifton Webb movies <laughs> in before I die. But we, we try and drag ourselves back to Hitchcock. Yeah. 
and North by North West. Mm. I mean, this is cliched by me now. Mm. I'm ready to admit immediately this is cliched. But when you see it, you still think, how did Hitch dream this up? And this is where... Cary Grant is chased by a crop-dusting aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, it's all very well. You see it in the movie and you go, oh, God, this is great. But how did Hitch think it up? I just thought that was pure genius. Well, apparently, one of the, the reasons why I thought of it was because he wanted to get away from the cliché of having somebody being shot down in a dark alleyway, which right, was the cliché okay. of clichés in the 1950 right. thrillers movies. And he said, well, how can we completely subvert that? And he says, well, we'll take him out of the city for one. We'll put him in broad daylight for, for two. We make sure that the killer actually doesn't have a gun will bring him down with a plane. Now that brings me back again to the recurring motif of the birds because the plane is a big bird that's chasing him down. <laughs> but it is, I mean, if you look at the, the there's one particular shot in, the, in, in that sequence, it looks, it's actually quite surreal. It looks like a surrealist painting because it's actually uncanny. There's vast emptiness and a man in a Madison, advertising, Madison Av- Avenue advertising suit executive guy being chased by a plane. It's it's just so bizarre. But that Hitchcock was attracted to that sort of sequence because he referred to it as pure cinema. A move a sequence that could be told purely visually and through okay. sound without dialogue. Can I talk about Cary Grant who, who like was so extraordinary because he was still playing like love scenes when he was about Certainly 70 odd. Yeah, right? that was strange because the girls are half his age. Nah, only you think of that. Like, I thought it was great. Anyway, um, but the thing... Well, like, if, let's face it, if Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron, Macron can do it, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, he was super, right? Um, he, How good an actor was he then? Um, he was great at a certain type of acting and he knew his limitations. You could never put him on stage and ask him to do Henry Miller. You know, but there's a ton of actors or, or Shakespeare. I was astonished. You know the fellow who was in the dinosaur movies? Um, I don't mean Richard Attenborough. I did Andrew Neil. What's his name? Sam Neil. Sam Neil. I, I interviewed Sam Neil mm. on the radio mm. and I asked him about uh, um, uh, theatre. Yeah. He said, I couldn't do theatre. He yeah. said, I die. Mm. So here's a guy who's very successful at what he does, mm. i.e. movies, mm. but he never pretended he could do theatre. Mm. Well, it's a different discipline. I mean, yeah. you know, we were talking a little bit a, a while ago about, um, you know, we were doing the Dustin Hoffman movie Tootsie very early yeah. on in the year and there's a, there's a movie that he made with Lawrence Olivia called Marathon Man and for a particular scene in the movie uh, Justin Hoffman's character had to be very 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 distressed so he stayed up all night Trying in to be preparation distressed. yeah and Laurence Olivier said my boy my dear boy have you tried acting <laughs> which was a very very snobby put down because theatre acting is completely different from movie yeah, acting and I think Justin Hoffman was doing in the, going in the right but direction there. this guy Cary Grant I, I mean there's another movie in which um, it, it, there's a stamp in it uh, and um, charade charade with the beautiful Audrey remember, Hepburn <laughs> He goes into the shower mm. with a suit on and he washes the suit and himself because yeah. it was one of these drip dry suits, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? So Grant did things, mm. I think, mm. which we all would have loved to be able to do. Mm. I mean, we all would have loved to be able to kind of impress women. Like, this is 1959, like this mm. movie. Mm. Um, and I'm 18 and mm. I'm watching North by Northwest. Mm. I want to be Cary Grant. Oh, of course. I yeah, mean, yeah. I want to wear a suit like Cary Grant. I want to be suave like Cary Grant. You know, so he did that. Now, the other thing 
you know me and supporting actors, which mm. I think are vital. You mentioned Martin Lando, who said, uh, sadly died this mm. week. I always thought he was a kind of a Jack Elam character. Right. He turned up in all these That's movies right. as a supporting yeah. actor. Yeah. Cary Grant's mother yes. in the movie. Jesse Royce Landis. Ah! Yeah. She was brilliant as his funny. mother. Yeah, let me something funny. Cary Grant was born in 1904. Jesse Royce Landis was born in 1896. Seven years older. <laughs> exactly. And he, she plays his mother. And then she played Grace Kelly's mother a couple of years previously in To Catch a Thief. Yeah. So again, you see, it's not only, and Hitchcock has his repertoire of actors. That's one thing that's overlooked is he had, you know, the guy who plays the professor, the CIA agent, yeah. uh, Leo G. Carroll, I think he turns up in about five or six Hitchcock films repeatedly. So he has this, you know, repertoire of actors that he, he uses again but and yeah, again but and again. This is precisely what John Ford did. Yes. War, I, uh, last bond last one, night yeah. for the umpteen time I watched Two Road Together with yeah, James one. Stewart mm. and Richard Ritmark yeah, and yeah. then suddenly all these guys and girls are turning up and I've seen them in a zillion yeah. John Ford movies yeah. notably Harry Carey Jr. for yeah. instance right yeah. now um, we get back to the North by Northwest yeah. I think we have a second clip which oh, I'd like, like to play yeah, yeah do. second clip um, we're going to take this from the famous auction scene you've got to understand what Hitchcock and Ernestine were doing they're putting together great sequences and they're basically stringing them like pearls along a necklace and he was oh, just right. joining them up you have this you know, great scene on the train the crop duster scene you've got the auction scene now again it appears like it's just great entertainment it's a great part of the thriller but in this scene if you listen to it carefully you suddenly realise that Eve Kendall the lady played by Eva Marie Saint is for sale. It's not the auction that they're trying to, they're tr- not buying artifacts. She's an agent. She's a double agent. We're trying to figure out on whose side is she, um, yeah. she favouring. And she's for sale. So I think that if we, if we listen to the clip here, it could come across. The auction. Yeah. Three One. of you together. Now that's a picture only Charles Adams could draw. Good evening, Mr. Captain. Before we start calling each other names, perhaps you'd better tell me yours. I haven't had the pleasure of you disappoint me, sir. I was just going to say that to her. I always understood you were a pretty shrewd fellow at your job. What possessed you to come blundering in here like this? Could it be an overpowering interest in art? Yes, the art of survival. Well, have you poured any good drunks lately? $100. He followed me here from the hotel. He was in your room? Sure, isn't everybody? 150 thank you. Now I'll say the two. Do I hear two? Two hundred, thank you. Now the three, do I hear three? Three hundred, anyone? You see, and that, the, the exchange there, he's when he says, isn't everybody in a hotel room? And suddenly we hear the voice of the auctioneer. And that's a very, sublim- <laughs> you know, a nice little subliminal thing. And the thing is, you've got to understand, when you look at Hitchcock films, you can watch them again and again and again. You unearth all these fantastic artefacts. If anybody is interested in Alfred Hitchcock... Uh, or if anyone hasn't watched his films, one reason to watch his films is a great way of watching the history of cine- cinema develop. He went from silent to sound. He went from Britain to America, black and white to colour. And he actually shot a movie in 3D. Wow. All right. Uh, there you have it. There's film lecturer at Trinity College Dublin, Stephen Bendick.ie. It is the great Stephen Bendick <laughs> who invariably puts me in my place. But then I was sitting on the hard seats for t- Tuppence Heapney when uh, Stephen Bendick was back in the plush seats. High Noon with George Hook. 
thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined in the studio now by Finnegal TD for Double Northwest, Deputy Noel Rock. Deputy Rock, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me, George. Uh, ticket touting, it excites you greatly, does it? Absolutely, yeah, I think it excites a great many people of my age and generation, you know, people who are music fans or sports fans in particular, are kind of fed up of being gouged and paying over the odds for particularly popular events, whether it's U2 tomorrow or perhaps the Six Nations whenever there's a crunch tie. But how are you going to stop it? Well, in other countries, what they've done, George, and successfully so, is they've brought about a ban on above-cost selling of tickets. They've done this in Belgium to great success. And indeed, as you know yourself, probably the IRFU, the FAI and the GAA in their own codes of conduct say that you shouldn't resell the tickets for above-case value. But the the thing is that every, certainly rugby club, right? And and I suspect Gaelic club or, or soccer club fundraises by the use of tickets for major events, right? So... They don't sell the ticket above cost price because certainly the president of the XYZ Rugby Club would be very disappointed if Deputy Noel Rock called him a ticket tout, right? <laughs> so therefore what he does is he sells you your lunch for a 100 quid, mm. which includes a ticket. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that so? Uh, as far as I know, I, I don't go to these lunches, but as far as I know, that, that does happen. I don't, happen. I don't, and, but and, of course it happens. And yeah. that's the case. Um, in terms of this le- legislation, that kind of bundling, if you like, won't uh, be precluded necessarily. What we're more so aiming at is the kind of formalised systematic ticket touting that you see if you go onto websites right now where you see U2 tickets on sale for two and a half grand. And the other thing as well, George, to point out for sports clubs in particular and fundraising and what have you, is that there's a specific part in the legislation that precludes, say, sports clubs, fundraisers, uh, raffles, etc., etc., and registered charities uh, they're all exempt, if you like, from this yeah, legislation. But uh, once upon a time, the ticket tout was quite a respectable kind of guy. Like, you recognised him, he had a dirty raincoat, and he had the tickets in his inside pocket, and he kind of sidled up to you, and he said, I messed up, do you want a ticket for the match? So you knew where you stood. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now, either internet or um, they are in three-piece suits, and I remember writing an article about a fellow who was actually in jail uh, for some form of illegal activity. And the lawyer said, you know, I was libeling him by calling him a ticket tout. So you can't call <laughs> any specific person a ticket tout, Deputy Rock. And, and I wouldn't intend to either necessarily. But you're right. The people who do it now are in three-piece suits. They have lots of computers in front of them. They have advanced access to ticket sales often. They snap up maybe 50 tickets, maybe 100 tickets, and they flip them over sometimes immediately for 5, 10, 20 times the face value. So it's a clear problem and there's a clear squeeze being put on proper music fans and proper sports fans who, whether they know it or not, never really got a look in for the tickets. All right, but hold a while. If, if, if they, you know... Um, well, in my case, rather than yours, because I don't know your, your background. Like, let's say that the engagement ring I bought for Ingrid, you know, has some kind of particular value. I know it hasn't, but let's say for argument's sake it <laughs> did. Now, I could, you wouldn't object at all if I sold that then to the highest bidder, even though it cost, now that might be a bad example, but there's a ton of rarity. I mean, it's the first law of economics, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The idea of price and demand. Yes, supply so and where demand. So where does supply and demand? Thank you. So where... Where there is small supply and high demand, like houses, 
or tickets for you too, mm-hmm. the price goes up. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between a house and ticket for you too? Well, That's you, a better example. Well, indeed. Uh, in our case, and we're doing it right now, you can build more houses. You can't simply create more tickets. There's an absolute scarcity to an event because it's a once-off. It never happens again. If you want to see England, Ireland in Croke Park, for example, in 2007, that happened and you can't see it again. And but what's tell- illegal about it? Well, nothing currently is illegal. No, but it. I mean, even... even well, I'm a, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a soccer fan, George, right. to give you an idea, okay? And I go to a lot of Irish soccer games. And for particular high-demand games, for example, Wales Away now, uh, the final group game, basically, yeah. it's in Wales. There'll be very few tickets for it. You can guarantee people will be getting fleeced left, right and centre for tickets. I don't believe in that. I think that's immoral. See, I don't think they're getting fleeced. I think they're paying the market price. But I, I think when it comes to matters of sport and when it comes to matters of music and concerts, the market shouldn't simply dictate. I think the artist sets the price. The artist sets a fair price, generally speaking, whether it's 60 euro, 100 euro, whatever. That's the price that they want fans to pay for it. And I think we should be working wherever possible to try and get as many of those tickets into real fans' hands as possible, rather than getting them into people's hands who simply want to profiteer. Well, uh, yeah, but you're, you're no doubt hero because you're a soccer fan. Um, Roy Keane famously talked about the prawn sandwich brigade. Wasn't yeah. that so? And, it was, and we see it in all sports where, uh, like, I remember truthfully sitting in Lansdowne Road and the people behind me didn't know who were playing until they looked at the programme, right? So therefore, I get that. It must be galling for somebody who watches Shamrock Rovers every week or watches Lansdowne or Mary's or whatever, and then they can't get a hand on the international ticket. But it is economics, Deputy Rock. Well, not necessarily. And I think, you know, you need to be very careful when you talk about applying economics to something like sport or like music. Because if we simply applied economics to it, George, for example... Why play the match at all? Surely the team with the most money could just buy the goals or buy the points and that'd be the end of the game. Okay, so let's now say I'm with you, okay? And we're going, you're going in to Dáil Éireann whenever it reopens and you're going to bring in a private member's bill uh, to make ticket touting illegal. Mm -hmm. How do you now, how do, because you've studied, how do the Belgians, the French or whoever they are, how do they do it? How do they prevent the fella sidling up to you in dirty raincoat saying, do you want two tickets, mister? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously guards are often outside stadiums, for example, yeah. and fines can be levied on people if, if they're shown to be uh, trying to sell tickets for above face value. Bear in mind, this doesn't stop people selling tickets. For example, if you bought Ingrid a ticket to Coldplay and Ingrid said to you, George, I don't like Coldplay at all. Will you get rid of those tickets? Well, you'll still be able to sell those tickets, but it'll just be for face value plus the booking fee. So it won't necessarily entirely stop ticket resale. It's just it'll stop above cost ticket resale. So in Belgium, for example, what happened when the law came about was that the most prevalent ticket resale websites both shut down operations the day the law was brought in. Um, so effectively reducing ticket touting by about 80% in one fell swoop. So that's that's a success, I think. And if we can replicate that here, all the better. But are we going to replicate it? Give it like, I mean, if it is such a good idea, why aren't we doing it? Like, surely the Belgians aren't smarter than we are. I think there's obviously a lot of external commercial pressure on these things. A lot of the companies will say and will threaten that, oh, well, you know, we might lose jobs if uh, if we bring this about in this country. But the Irish people are fairly clear on this. We uh, commissioned a, a poll with uh, with the Irish Daily Mail and Ireland Thinks, a new polling company. And even if there are a few job losses, 86% of people are in favour of bringing about regulation here. 
normally the ticketing companies would be relied upon to bring about regulation. For example, George, simple things like restricting the number of tickets a person can buy or demanding ID to be accompanied by the ticket uh, when you're going into the venue. These are simple things and they're quite effective. But unfortunately, the ticket sellers refuse to implement these. Therefore, it seems government has to I'm not sure because I'm not well up on going to soccer matches, Mm -hmm. internationals. But if you go to a rugby international, on the ticket, it says who got the ticket. Originally, now, it won't say Noel Rock or George Hook, but it will say something like, you know, Lansdowne Football Club or the Referees Association or, you know, whoever, because rugby tickets are sold through the club rather through than... The club. Yeah. So, I mean, there'd obviously have to be changes there slightly in terms of the, the procedure to a certain extent if Ticketmaster had been interested in regulating that in that particular way. But for music concerts, it's very different altogether, George. Obviously, our names are on them. Noel Rock and George Hook's names are on our respective tickets for the concert. So that's actually much because easier. Because that's the way we bought them, with our credit card or Pre- Precisely, yeah. So that's much easier to police. However, the ticketing companies have shown hitherto no interest in regulating that so far. Um, so we're relying on Noel Rock. To a certain extent, perhaps, yeah. And Ed Sheeran, it seems, who uh, also has a great interest in preventing doubts. I didn't know what constituency he was elected for, but (laughs) I'll settle for (laughs) Deputy Noel Rock, Finnegan TD for Dublin North West. I must say, to be fair, um, it seems... Right, wrong that people are paying thousands of euro for tickets for you two tomorrow, which can only mean that the corporate sector is buying them rather than the ordinary kind of fan who goes to a concert. My thanks to my guest, Finnegan TD for Dublin Northwest, No Rock. I'm going to Washington DC talk to Michael Graham about OJ Simpson. High noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I've done my time. You know, I've done it as well and as respectfully as I think anybody can. I'm sorry it happened. I'm sorry to Nevada. Uh, I wish, I wish Riccio had never called me. I, I thought I was glad to get my stuff back, but it wasn't worth it. You know, nine years away from your family is just, just not worth it. And, and I, I, I'm sorry. Well, that was um, O.J. Simpson, who's now been granted parole after serving nine years of a 33-year sentence for armed robbery. And no doubt uh, Michael Graham in Washington, D.C. will have a view, whether we'll agree with it or not, is to be seen or heard. He joins us now. Michael, welcome to the program. I want you to know I'm broadcasting as I roll through town in a white Bronco, wearing my uh, disguise with $10,000 in cash in a bag next to me. So I'm completely ready. I think the moment – first of all, George, think about this for a second. A guy is in a terrible car accident in the 1990s and lapses into a coma. He wakes up from the coma yesterday. He looks by his nightstand in the hospital room, and there's newspapers, and the headlines are full of the names Clinton and Trump. He flips on TV, and every channel has OJ in court. So he just rolls over and goes back to sleep because he missed – it's still the 1990s. It is amazing to see – and that's what happened in the States yesterday. Every network, NBC, ABC – not the news networks, the regular – you know, usually showing game shows and soap operas, tuned in to watch O.J. Simpson's court appearance. That's how huge the media coverage has been. But hold on, no other black man in America would have got that kind of deal. 
And and it, first of all, it's America's affection for football and for sports stars. Uh, and like he got parole nine out of thirty-three. Like he's only served twenty-five percent of the sentence here. And the problem for OJ is, I know he, he was found not guilty, but every person looking at television yesterday, surely in America, must also have thought about. Um, the murder for which he was found not guilty. So fine, he's innocent, but it was in everybody's head, surely. Yeah, that's you can't look at O.J. without that context. And here's how things have changed since he was uh, found not guilty of a crime he clearly committed. He obviously murdered his ex-wife. He obviously murdered the poor guy who tried to deliver the sunglasses that day. Um, in 1995, during the trial, 75% of black Americans said he was innocent and 75% of white Americans said he was guilty. Today, about 25% of black Americans still say he's innocent. The vast majority of black Americans acknowledge what everybody acknowledges, which is that he, the guy is a dirtbag murderer. But I disagree with you about his treatment. The fact is, America shoves people out of prisons on parole because we have a high prison population. It's expensive to keep people in prison. And so unless you do something wrong, here's what all the legal beagles spent two days telling us this over here, George, that under any normal circumstances, a guy in OJ's situation who's been in prison for nine years hasn't caused any trouble, has literally no complaints against him, is probably going to get out on parole. Remember, parole is not out. I mean, you're out of prison, but you still have to do regular mandatory you know, drug tests. You still have to check in with a parole officer. Your movements are still restricted. So he'll still be in the legal system. He'll just be living probably in Florida near his kids. All right. He is 70, uh, of course. Yeah. But what about my other question about the black thing that I mean, the majority of people in prisons in America are black. The majority of people who get the chair are black. Uh, mm -hmm. The American penal system discriminates against blacks. Uh, Simpson got a, <laughs> got a deal because he was a football player. What I love about talking to you, George, is that you have no problem asserting these things with having no idea what you're talking about. It is not true that a majority of people in American prisons are black because Americans' po black population is only 13% of the country. You're just wrong. It is true that you are disproportionately likely to go well, to prison if you're black. But there's a reason, which is because if you're a black person and you're killed, there's a 90% chance that the person who murdered you was a fellow black person. There's a problem. Uh, you can link it back to the drug trade having to do with black on black crime, blah, blah, blah. But that has nothing to do with some nefarious scheme to put people in prison. It has to do with other real life problems that need to be addressed. Also, I want to get uh, uh, back to the OJ trial because, or the, the OJ case yesterday, because I got to tell you, there were a couple of moments where even I, as cynical as I am, popped up when he looked at these parole people on the camera, because it was all on TV and said, quote, I've basically spent a conflict free life. <laughs> what are you well, well, other than that time I stuck knives in people, you know, I get along with everybody. Well, except for the guy whose head I almost cut off with a kitchen knife. Remember, he almost decapitated a guy. You could see the flashes of O.J. rage when he was being confronted with the facts of this robbery case. And it was a third rate robbery. It, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a dumb crime they went to prison for. But when someone pointed, started talking about it, he was adamant. That was my property. Those flashes of anger. 
anger. This is a guy who has major psychological problems that he's going to have to deal with. Okay. Uh, there's talk of well, let me quickly. There's a talk of him getting a reality show where the you know cameras exactly. would like follow him around. Here's why that won't happen. There is no chance that OJ is under a camera 24/7 for more than a week without breaking his parole. And then he breaks parole, he's on camera, he goes back to prison. I predict that won't happen because he's still a guy who is fundamentally out of control. All right. I tell you, I also believe that O.J. Simpson, like many American football players, got hit too many times in the head. Uh, but I disagree with the parole, I must say, because I think it's uh, it's wrong. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. I, you share my dislike for the man, Michael. I get that. This is a rare moment of agreement, which I want to mark in the annals and records of uh, Newstalk. I was Michael Graham. Uh, more next Tuesday. Uh, but coming up, here come the girls.